0: Hello, and welcome to Podcast 19. I'm Chadwick Matlin, the show's executive producer and 538's deputy editor. We thought I'd host this episode because I've spent the past few weeks confronting the way COVID-19 has reshaped the world. Two weeks ago, my family got the call we'd been dreading for months. My grandmother, whom we all called Nana and who lived alone in Amsterdam, had come down with a fever and labored breathing. She was 92 years old, a Holocaust survivor, and the matriarch of our family. She had also lived a full life, and this was the second major health scare of the year. When a test confirmed that she didn't have COVID, I knew it was time to get on a plane before it was too late. But how to do that? The European Union banned Americans from traveling to Europe because of the high rates of COVID-19 in the US earlier this year. And as a result, my grandmother hadn't seen any of her family for months. I'd last seen her in March, but had to leave suddenly after President Trump announced his own travel ban on people coming to the US from Europe. But now, after a panicked call to the Dutch consulate, it seemed I'd be able to get into the country if I had a doctor's note about my grandmother's terminal condition. So I got on the plane, and let me tell you, aside, you know, from the threat of spreading and acquiring a life-altering illness, it's a great time to fly to Europe. There were maybe 40 people on a plane that had space for at least 300, and when I landed, the Dutch did let me in, but I was unfortunately too late to see my grandmother before she passed away. Like so many people over the past six months, she died alone, far from family, which is terribly sad. But one last time, she brought my family together in Holland, pandemic be damned. And while we were grieving in Amsterdam, we saw a country whose cultural norms around the pandemic were very different than I expected they'd be. Namely, masks were almost nowhere to be seen, even though we think of Europe as being quote-unquote better at fighting COVID-19 than the U.S. is. That's what the second act of our show is about this week, why Holland has treated masks so differently than places with low transmission in the U.S., and what that tells us about how the lived experience of COVID-19 is different depending on where you are. But first, as promised, Anna is back. This week brought news of the first confirmed cases of those who got COVID-19 twice, prompting many scientists to wonder just how long immunity from the disease lasts for those who have already been sickened by it. That question has major implications for how we move on from our current quagmire. So Anna got on the phone with Helen Branswell, Stat News' senior infectious disease reporter, to talk about the news and her recent piece about four ways that we might develop immunity to COVID-19. There's some background noise on Helen's line, but we hope you'll bear with us.
1: Helen, thank you so much for speaking with me today. Thank you for having me. I have to say, I've been a fan of your writing for a very long time, so this is a real treat for me.
2: Oh, thank you very much.
1: So earlier this week, we got the first confirmed report of a recovered COVID patient getting reinfected. And I think um, many of us understand immunity as being kind of an all or nothing situation, so this news understandably scared and disheartened a lot of people. So I guess I want to start off by getting a pulse check from you. Um, How worrisome is this news to the doctors and public health officials you've been speaking with?
2: Pretty much not at all. Everybody's been expecting that there will be people who've had COVID who will get reinfected. The question really has been how long will the immunity between bouts of the illness last.
1: Well, so you published a piece in Stat this week on sort of four different scenarios for reaching immunity, or, or like four different types of immunity this virus might induce. Um, is the type of immunity where you're protected for life off the table?
2: Yeah, so that's called sterilizing immunity. And uh, what it means is that once you've had something, you can never catch it again the kinds of viruses that attack our nasal passages and our up the upper airways um, don't typically induce sterilizing immunity. When you think about it, you know, we have colds. We can catch colds multiple times over our lifetime, the same with influenza. And the assumption has been that this is a coronavirus and it would be like that as well in fact there are four human coronaviruses and they are about they represent about 15% of all common colds and um, we can be reinfected with them multiple times over our lifetime. So the expectation with this one has been that we it would be the same.
1: In your article, you talk about um, more than just this sterilizing, kind of all or nothing immunity. Um, another type you talk about is something called functional immunity. Can you explain what that is? I'm not sure that's a term that immunologists
2: would all recognize, but the, the reason I wrote this story was I, I was trying to figure out where we were going you know with this this new virus, how we were going to learn to coexist with it, and I reached out to a um, coronavirus expert that I sometimes interview at the University of Texas Medical Branch in Galveston, a man named Venet Manicherry. and you know he came back to me and said he sort of saw four possible scenarios and he laid them out this way and and that's where I got this term. His definition of functional immunity was that you know this would be effectively the next best thing to sterilizing. So you could be reinfected at some point after having had an infection or even potentially after having uh, a vaccination. But your immune system is primed to recognize this virus. And so when you encounter it, your immune responses sort of kick into gear very quickly. You might have almost no symptoms or very mild symptoms. And, you know, in an ideal world, you might not generate enough virus in your upper airways to, you know, emit virus. They call that shedding. So you might not shed virus and effectively contribute to onward passage of, of the coronavirus. So, So in that case, people who get reinfected really wouldn't... Have you know, any kind of a serious illness and they might not um, transmit the virus very much or if at all, in which case, it just might become more rare.
1: I mean, you spoke to a lot of scientists for this story. How um, likely do they think that scenario would be?
2: Um, you know, most of the scientists I spoke to chose that option. They, they thought that uh, that or the next... Um, scenario one down from that which i called waning immunity in in the piece were the most likely scenarios and waning immunity is effectively a you know a functional immunity but not quite as good uh people might have mild colds or you know something flu-like but um, and might be able to transmit, but but still much much milder disease than um, what we're seeing now in the severe cases of, of COVID nineteen. Is
1: there evidence um, that waning immunity might be what happens with COVID? Um, You know,
2: there's a lot of, there have been a lot of papers that have been published and many of them show fairly durable immune responses. Others suggest that immune responses wane pretty quickly and others suggest that some people don't develop immune responses much at all. The full picture isn't really clear at this point, I think. Effectively, what people told me was that this virus does exactly what you would expect a virus that infects this way does to the immune system. You get a really rapid immune response, you know, your antibodies go up and then there's somewhat of a decline. But that doesn't mean that your body has forgotten what this threat is. There there are questions about people who've had asymptomatic cases or who had super mild cases and it'll take some time to, to determine whether those people get the kind of immune introduction that you would need to, to generate a strong response that would kick in again later. We're just going to need some time to see. That said, the first case that came to light, the first confirmed reinfection case was a man from Hong Kong who had a very mild illness in March. He had symptoms for three days, but we're talking um, cough and fatigue, not pneumonia. And um, he recently traveled to Spain and on his way back when he arrived at Hong Kong airport, they are testing everybody as they come into to Hong Kong. And um, his test came back positive. So, you know, he was reinfected, but he had no symptoms. So, you know, mild infection in the spring, a second case with no symptoms, you know, this is this is what people are hoping will be kind of the paradigm.
1: Yeah, that is actually very encouraging. What do we know from other coronaviruses about the durability of immunity? So there haven't been
2: tons of studies on coronaviruses because they cause such mild human disease. Um, But a couple that have been done suggest that these are um, viruses we can be reinfected with multiple times over our lifetime and uh, that sometimes people can be reinfected within a relatively short period of time. Um, There was a paper done out of the Netherlands, where um, they measured sort of antibody levels to the human coronaviruses in 10 people following some of them as far back as to 1985 and you know if the antibody levels went up to one of the the coronaviruses they interpreted that as the person having had a reinfection and those people were infected multiple times with you know all of the coronaviruses and in some cases um you know people were reinfected within about a six-month window. Uh, you know, there have been other studies that it suggests that immunity might last closer to a year, but, but it's definitely not thought to be long-lasting.
1: Right, right. And just to clarify, when we're talking about these coronaviruses, we're talking about the ones that cause the common cold. That's correct. Is the level of immunity induced by the virus the same as the level of immunity we could expect from a vaccine? if
2: natural infection doesn't induce sterilizing immunity vaccines likely won't be able to either so you know the vaccines that we see may not be 100% effective likely won't be 100% effective you know people who are vaccinated might still have a few symptoms might you know have a very low grade infection but but uh hopefully would be prevented from developing a severe infection that would require hospitalization In terms of whether vaccines would produce a better or lesser uh, immune response, you know, we'll have to see how well they work. Um, A number of them contain uh, compounds called adjuvants, which are effectively uh, chemicals that boost your immune response. And it's conceivable, you know, that those vaccines could induce quite a you know good and robust immune response maybe even longer than than what you would get from um, an infection Uh, but you know we'll just have to see over time the science on this is still evolving
1: the last scenario you mentioned is essentially where we completely lose our immunity after getting the virus how likely did scientists think that scenario would be
2: None of the scientists I spoke to thought that was at all likely. In fact, they they all said they could not see that happening that there is no reason to believe that this virus is going to do something like that that we will have, you know, anybody who contracts it or anybody who's vaccinated against it, when vaccines become available, will have immune system armamentarium that will help them to respond to it on a second time round. In fact, Vinit Menacheri, the scientist I mentioned earlier, said he is convinced that you'll never be as sick on subsequent infections as you were on your first.
1: Are, do, in your experience, are scientists just optimists?
2: Um, <laughs> no, I don't. I don't think so. I mean, this does not feel like wishful thinking. I think these are people who are sort of looking at what the data so far suggest, and and sort of f- seeing how that fits with the pattern of responses to other things. I mean, you know, your listeners should understand that these are very much educated guesses, but
1: they are educated. Right. Well, Helen, thank you so much for speaking with me today. I learned so much. Well, thank you for having me, Anna.
0: All right, back to my strange trip to Holland, which made me realize something we've lost as we've all bunkered down in the face of COVID-19. The ability to see how another culture lives. I landed in Holland expecting a country that would be far more advanced than the U.S. in terms of COVID-19 prevention. After all, the country has had only about a fourth as many cases as the U.S. has per 100,000 people, and Holland was able to squelch their first wave far sooner than we have been able to. But when I stumbled into the grocery store my first morning in Amsterdam, I was the only person wearing a mask. And boy did I get looks. I chalked it up to my giant suitcase, but as the week continued, it was clear that masks were not the basic prophylactic that they were in New York City. My Dutch family told me that nobody wears masks outside in Holland, and they're only required on public transit and in very busy parts of cities. Even in malls and restaurants, masks were almost nowhere to be seen. Yet here I was, trying to do the ethical thing by wearing a mask trying to be respectful of a country that was more rooted in the science of the disease than the one I had just come from. In other words, I was all turned around. Why were so few people wearing masks? Cases were on the rise while I was there, so it's not like the pandemic wasn't an urgent issue. Perhaps then it was something more cultural at play. When I got back to the US, I sought out somebody who could help me decipher what I had experienced. So I called up Manon Perry, a professor of medical history at Vrije University in Amsterdam, and a senior lecturer in American Studies and Public History at the University of Amsterdam. And it turns out that even though Holland did a better job containing the virus early on, it has still had a tense national conversation about the best ways to handle the pandemic. and. It's one that will feel somewhat familiar to Americans. In our conversation, Perry started by telling me about the recent history of mask rules in the Netherlands.
3: Mask rules that were introduced were only introduced originally on public transport in June. The idea being that in trains and buses, there wasn't enough ventilation. So it was more dangerous to be trapped inside without air circulating and so everyone should be required to wear masks there. Nowhere else was it really a requirement, so not inside shops, not in schools, and there's even been some uh, consternation because in some healthcare settings, they were asked asking people not to wear masks um, because originally the Dutch government was, and certainly the public health organization, was saying that masks might be more contributing to spread because people would touch their faces more, or um, not wash them often enough. And also there was an idea that then they wouldn't obey social distancing. So the the biggest part of Dutch policy has been work from home, wash your hands regularly, keep 1.5 meters from other people, um, and sneeze into your elbow, sneeze or cough into your elbow instead of your hand. And then in the last couple of weeks, because there's been this increase of cases in Amsterdam and Rotterdam, The mayors of both of those cities have asked that masks be introduced in the busiest streets, so the shopping areas, the red light district of Amsterdam, which there's a lot of tourists, for example. The irony is that the night before, the leading uh, figure of the Dutch government, the minister here, said that masks were not effective. So again, they weren't going to be mandated for everybody in the Netherlands to use. So it was a really uh, difficult situation because it completely undermined the statements made the next day by the local mayors. So I think what you saw when you came was that uh, it's only very recently been introduced, only in certain busy places, and on the whole, most people here are not taking that as a serious recommendation because the government itself has, has said it's not a worthwhile initiative.
0: So the original... Uh success against the spread of the virus when it first started in in March and April was done without a coordinated mask uh, public health message, right? You're saying that it was done largely by social distancing and hand washing.
3: Yeah. And I think, you know, that's one of the crucial things to think about is that the the epidemic in each country and in each city even is very specific, right? So the idea that um, a mask could be universally advantageous or universally useless is uh, a bit unrealistic that really it depends on the circumstances so um because we were able to get hold of community spread here in the Netherlands more effectively and faster than you did in the US we haven't got the same levels out in the community and so in general it didn't make much sense to insist on mask wearing at an earlier point as long as people were uh, by then you know, keeping their distances and obeying all the rest of the rules. The one difference with that, I would say, is uh, for people who have pre-existing health issues or, you know, the so-called vulnerable populations, that's meant it's harder for them to be able to have the same freedoms as anybody else, of course.
0: Do you feel as though the, the public health advice in the beginning of the pandemic has in part defined Dutch culture around the pandemic?
3: Well, I think it's. Um, I think certainly it has. You know, there's, there was a response from the beginning, and and the government actually spoke in terms of Dutch culture because they talked about how uh, Dutch sobriety, a kind of sensibleness, was why they were going to have an intelligent lockdown. You've probably seen that phrase in the media, right? So there was this notion that they weren't going to overreact here the way other countries would do. And they weren't going to close everything. They were going to have a kind of more tailored and targeted response based on the idea that Dutch citizens could be trusted. They were all adults. This is something that's been you know, stressed in uh, the press conferences, that adults can take responsibility for themselves and that therefore we can be trusted to follow these measures. Now, as the um, case numbers are rising, the tone in some of those press conferences has gotten a little bit more lecturing and a bit more kind of, you know, if you're not behaving properly, then we're going to have to institute more strict measures. But I wonder if it's uh, not so much a cultural issue, but actually like the recent experience. So because you were in New York, presumably you saw the consequences. And I think here, um, most people are quite removed from it we haven't seen up close unless you have a family member. And for most of those people, it's a family member who is quite elderly. Um, We're living here in a bit of a protected bubble in some ways, which is, you know, also a classic problem with public health policy, right? When it's going well and working, people forget or don't realise how significant and useful it is because they don't see the crisis
0: Yeah, I think our American listeners, a lot of what you just said will ring familiar to them because we've seen as the as the virus spreads across the country, when it reaches a state that hasn't had a big outbreak yet, you know that state originally is very uh, resistant to to masks, for example, and then you know after. A several weeks or a month of, of devastation within the community, that's when the, rep- that's when the senators, for example, will come out and say, no masks are a good idea. And, and there is that sort of that willful disbelief that people have that their place, their people might be somehow different than, than other places, um, which is one of the pernicious, I think, aspects of, of this.
3: Yeah. I mean, it's totally, it's historically, you know, a classic issue that every time everybody locates the risk of a pandemic in other populations, you know, it's something that's happening to other people elsewhere. It couldn't be us. Um, And we saw at the beginning of the COVID pandemic exactly the same thing, right? That in the, certainly in Europe, people were looking at Italy and Spain and thinking, well, it must be something about, you know, a a poor healthcare infrastructure or the ways people are behaving that makes it spread so rapidly there and we won't have to face it. And then of course, we just found that it was a time lag and then it was arriving and and the rates were going up just as rapidly, you know?
0: In the States, the mask, conversation is in large part one about civil liberties and whether or not governments should be able to tell you what to wear and and limit your your right to live the way you want to live Um, and i'm wondering if there's a similar flashpoint within a culture that has different norms around civil liberties and different norms around privacy for example
3: Well, I think, you know, there's certainly not the same level of individualism in the Netherlands, right? I mean, also part of the whole of the European Union project is thinking about shared responsibilities and shared benefits that can come from exchange. So uh, in one sense, I don't think civil liberties has been quite the same framing because there isn't the individualism at the bottom of it all. Instead, I would say it's been more of a kind of pushback on the idea that it's an overreaction, that it's unnecessary and extreme. So there is one of the groups called uh, Virus Vonzin, which means uh, virus madness. And you see on social media when there's uh, announcements from public health agencies or disputes about, you know, um, wearing masks in shops or whatever, a lot of the pushback on social media is this idea that, it's you know, it's still it's only like the flu or it's a very bad flu or, you know, all of this is completely over the top. So it's framed, I, I would say, in a slightly different way. Uh, there's also resistance from the other side, from a group called Containment New, which is containment now, who are very critical that the Dutch government should be using masks and shouldn't be undermining their use in uh, Amsterdam and Rotterdam, for example. And it's also been very critical about the um, attitude in public health here that children don't play a very large role in the spread, for example.
0: In the US, the virus has affected populations quite differently, based essentially on, on race and class, um, largely because of underlying health conditions that are a part of systemic health inequality in the US. Has the Netherlands seen similar schisms, similar dividing lines, and has that affected the conversation at all about public health measures?
3: I think it's difficult to say at this point because I don't know how much data there is about um, the demographics racially of the populations affected. But the one thing that has become apparent, certainly from the first wave, is that, you know, there was a, a, as in many other places, the rates of infection in care homes for the elderly were pretty catastrophic. And it's been striking that that has not caused uh, the same kind of outrage as it has in other places. And in fact, the, um, the Dutch ethics policy that was devised to help uh, decision-making in hospitals when there are you know, too many people, too many patients, not enough beds, not enough nurses, or, or not enough uh, ventilators in the IC, was quite explicit about the idea that uh, older people should not take up resources that could be allocated to younger people who would have many more years of happy life after surviving. And while those conversations are happening in lots of places, I do think it's, uh, it must be also tied to the kind of culture of euthanasia in the Netherlands and the notion that you can um, decide or you can determine not to have kind of heroic measures at the end of life in order to preserve life. And you might be more invested in quality of life which I, you know, I absolutely support. I think it's really important to allow people to decide um how they want to face terminal illness or um severe decline at the end of life. But there's a whole issue going on here where we're not allowed to talk about the fact that older people are essentially being asked to accept this level of, of disposability, right? And self, kind of self-sacrifice. And it's become more and more explicit in newspapers, this idea that you know there was even an expression I think a few weeks ago about dead wood, you know this idea that older people might be um you know if if we're going to shut down everything to protect those people, we're going to ruin younger people's lives and and is that fair
0: It's interesting you say that in the states there was a, a, there was a moment where a very similar controversy was happening in which I believe it was um, someone high up in in the Texas government was on a cable news show and, and said a version of what you're saying. After the interview, I looked up this quote that I was trying to reference and found it. It's Texas Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick talking to Tucker Carlson back in March.
1: And, you know, Tucker, no one reached out to me and said, uh, as a senior citizen, uh, are you willing to take a chance on your survival in exchange for keeping the America that all America loves for your children and grandchildren. And if that's the exchange, I'm all in.
0: That was met with immediate blowback. And I'm curious whether it's in part because of the different cultural norms around end-of-life care. Um, The U.S. sort of infamously obviously has a very expensive end-of-life care uh, system and that doesn't Necessarily make the people in it happy, but we're very uncomfortable with the idea of um, of, of death panels, for example. Was was a big flashpoint during the healthcare um, conversation, and so it, it, I think this what you're getting at is sort of what I was in, in some ways applies to what I was getting at with the masks as well, which is how different cultural norms manifest um, in a bunch of different ways in in this um, crisis. And obviously, you don't want to overgeneralize about a whole culture. But there are these threads that that cultures have and and stories that they tell themselves that that do become apparent in crisis, I think in particular
3: yeah, I mean I think there's there's a lot of factors um that that are at work together. I mean one of the things that I found most shocking about that statement coming from ethicists was that i hadn't yet seen a statement from any bioethicists saying that there's a um an ethical imperative not to have limited resources right like so instead of saying that we shouldn't have to be saying we don't have enough beds nurses equipment for these people we should be talking about how what how many years of kind of austerity and efficiency defunding of healthcare services have created that situation but but instead we've moved on straight to no we'll work with the bad situation we've got and we'll allocate the resources around that. So I think it's um, one of the issues is to, so okay, there's kind of maybe a cultural background to it, but it's also hugely political, right? And it's tied in with economics and the allocation of resources. And it's the interaction of all those things together that I think is covered up by these descriptions from government leaders or public health agencies when they talk about, oh, you know, we couldn't do that here because that doesn't suit the national character, or, you know, this is this is what our people will accept, or, you know, you think, well, there's, there's something underneath all of that that gets hidden by just claiming that, no, this is the only thing that's possible here. And it's all of these more complex and thorny questions about what we're willing to pay for, how many years we haven't paid for it, so that's why there's a crisis now, you know.
0: My thanks again to Manon Perry for joining the show and being my tour guide to a culture that... I thought I was used to, but was very confused by. A couple days after our interview, Manon emailed me the news that Amsterdam is ending its requirement for masks in those busy public spaces at the end of August in just a few days. And that'll do it for this episode of Podcast 19. If you have a question you'd like us to answer on the show, email us a voice memo at askpodcast19 at gmail.com. That's askpodcast19 at gmail.com. I'm Chadwick Matlin, usually our executive producer this week, also our editor, which you've probably realized by now, given the quality of the editing in the show, give it my best shot. We'll soon have a new producer to replace our old producer, Jake Arlo, whom we miss dearly. Uh, So stay tuned for that. And thankfully, Anna Rothschild should be back next week. I'm excited to slink back into the shadows.